Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. The United States, along with other high-income countries, is undergoing a fundamental demographic shift with rapid growth in the share of the population over age 65. Now, since medical and caregiving needs increase with age, this shift has significant implications for individuals and families and also for government programs like Medicare and Medicaid that cover the cost of many services that an aging population requires. Back in 2019, Health Affairs published a paper called The Forgotten Middle by Pearson et al., documenting the financial challenges an aging population will have meeting their combined housing and healthcare needs. But the ability to meet those needs varies greatly by income. What do we know about the relative ability of higher and lower income people to meet their needs as they grow older? That's the topic of today's episode of A Health Policy. I'm here with Jack Chappell, PhD candidate in economics at USC Dornsife and a research assistant at the Schaefer Center. Mr. Chappell and co-authors published a paper in the December 2023 issue of Health Affairs examining changes over the past couple of decades in the health and economic resources of Americans approaching retirement. They found quite different scenarios for those in the lower half of the income scale relative to those in the upper half. We'll discuss these findings in more detail in today's episode. Mr. Chappell, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. So this is a complicated topic, but really important. And uh, I want to sort of ask you to draw out the context that you did your study in, and then uh, we'll talk about some of the findings. So, you know, it's sort of commonplace to hear that we live in an aging society. Well, we're all getting older, so that kind of doesn't seem very descriptive. What does it mean to say that it's an aging society when you look at uh, demographics in the United States today? Yeah, sure. So I think there's two main trends that set the context for our study. And so the first is this concept of an aging society. And so what we mean there is a society where the number of people who are over age 60 is larger than the number of people under age 15. Uh, So more older people than there are children to eventually become the adults of tomorrow. And so in the U.S., we actually just crossed this line uh, very recently, a few years ago. And this has been the result of a long-term trend that we see in many developed countries where people are living longer lives, but also having less children. And so when we then combine that fact with the fact that the large baby boomer generation is now entering retirement, this trend is only hastened and the age distribution of our society is being permanently altered. And so with this big demographic change uh, might present some new challenges for our society, especially as it relates to health and caregiving. Uh, And importantly, it might affect all Americans and not just those at the very bottom of the economic distribution or the most disadvantaged. And so that kind of brings me to the second broad trend, uh, and that is that the middle class in the U.S., which has long been thought of kind of as the bedrock of American society, has been shrinking in the past decades. And so we think that it's essential that we figure out what supports might be needed to foster an environment that will support a prosperous, healthy middle class as we transition into this aging society. So that's a great introduction to this study. So on the one hand, we've got aging. On the other hand, we sort of assume that if you're in the middle class, you'll be able to afford what you need. That's kind of what I think people think of being middle class is. 
But we also have all these programs that can support you. They're under financial pressure. So let's talk a little bit about the study you conducted. You looked at different cohorts. Uh, well, I'm going to let you explain it. T- talk to us about who you studied and what you were looking for in the cohorts that you studied. Yeah, sure. So our ultimate goal in this study is to examine the health and economic well-being of particularly middle-class Americans uh, who are nearing retirement. And then we also project how we think their future life course will evolve. And so we're focused here on Americans that are in their mid-50s, and we're focusing mainly in 2018, which is the last year of data that we had. And we're using health and retirement study data for all of this. And so we're focusing on these Americans in their mid-50s in 2018 and then comparing them to cohorts of the same age in 2012, 2006, all the way back to 1994. And then since we're particularly interested in economic disparities in health in the middle of the economic distribution, uh, we define what we describe as the lower middle and upper middle economic status groups. And these are the two main groups of interest for our study. And so specifically, we're looking for people that are above the typical income eligibility thresholds for public benefits. So they're making too much to really qualify for lots of public support, uh, but they still have modest incomes in our very solidly middle class. And so for the lower middle, this comes out to people with around $20,000 to $60,000 worth of economic resources per year. Um, And so these are people that are probably not going to qualify for things like Medicaid or food stamps, but still have pretty modest incomes. And then for the upper middle, this comes out to about sixty to 120000 um, So those are our groups. But then with those groups defined, uh, we're looking at a couple different outcomes and a, a few different things. So first, as I said, we're examining the health and economic well-being of these groups when we first observe them in the data Uh, when they're in their mid-50s, so looking at things like what their uh, diagnosed health conditions looked like then, their incomes and home ownership. Uh, And then given these characteristics at age 50 or in their 50s, we then use what's called a dynamic micro-simulation model to then simulate their future life course. And so what we're doing with this is we're projecting how long all of these individuals will live, uh, but importantly, also we project for each of those future life years uh, what Will their health status be in each of those years? And how many economic resources will they have? And so the main things we're looking at here are what are the disparities between outcomes between the lower middle and upper middle groups? And how have these disparities evolved over time? So I guess I can confess to a keen interest in this study as someone who was in my mid-50s in 2018. uh, When you have your most recent data, I'm very attentive to my health and whether or not I'll have the financial resources I need to retire down the road. So these things seem uh, relevant uh, to me personally. Uh, But if we're looking more societally at a more of a societal level, um, we do have to ask these questions about uh, what what resources people have, what their expectation, expected needs are, and what our programs are to serve them. So let's jump sort of to the top-level findings, if you will. Uh, to me, what jumped out, and you certainly call this out in the paper, is this real difference between uh, the, the trajectory for the lower half that you described and the upper half. Can you say a little more about that? Yeah, sure. So, uh, yeah, I'll give a quick overview of the kind of top-level results, and then maybe we can dig into some details after that. So, um, in general, what we find is across almost all the dimensions that we look at, 
uh, we're seeing that a disparity in outcomes between the lower middle and upper middle did exist to some extent in 1994, uh, but that disparity has widened significantly over time for uh, almost all these outcomes. And so thinking in terms of economic resources at midlife, so things like their earnings and homeownership, um, we find that those in the lower middle in 2018 actually had no more resources than someone similar in 1994. And in many cases, they actually had even less. Uh, but meanwhile, those in the upper middle uh, continue to see significant economic gains between 1994 and 2018. Um, in terms of health at midlife, uh, somewhat similar in that we see a widening uh, of the disparity between lower middle and upper middle. Uh, but here, worryingly, we actually see that health appears to be getting worse for both groups. And then finally, when we take all of these characteristics and use them to project forward these people's future life course, um, as you might expect, we again see a widening of this disparity. So we project that people will have longer overall life expectancy, but again, those in the upper middle will are gaining extra life years faster than those in the lower middle. Uh, but then importantly, once we adjust that life expectancy for the health quality of life, uh, we find that actually those in the lower middle are again no better off than uh, people in 19, similar people in 1994, even though those in the upper middle are continuing to gain. So at the outset, you talked about a shrinking middle class. I didn't ask you to define that precisely. Um, what it sounds to me like is sort of the other uh, phenomenon we hear a lot about, which is growing income inequality. So sort of the the division of the middle class maybe into a more successful growing, uh, uh, a more successfully aging and uh, one with higher income growth and a more stagnant, stagnant sort of lower half. Is that the right way to think about the phenomenon? Yeah, I think that's how you can think of it. So a common way that people define the middle class is they take someone with a median income and then they take everyone that has more than half that median income and then everyone that has less than double that median income. Uh, and so we use a slightly different measure, but you can think of it in the same way. Um, and so what we've seen in other evidence is that uh, the size of this group, so if you cut up the society into these three groups, those at the low, the middle, and the top, uh, the middle is getting smaller, and that's because the groups at the top and bottom are getting larger. So essentially, we have kind of a hollowing out of the middle class uh, and more of a bifurcation of the society into uh, an upper group and a lower group. So that's uh, that's super helpful. So that, there really is literally a shrinking of the middle class. And uh, I, if you can answer this, it would be great. And if not, I would understand. But uh, how does that line up with sort of your uh, cohorts that you described, the bottom half and upper half? Are those all parts of the middle or are those dipping into the lower and reaching up into the higher? Yeah. So I think another important point to highlight uh, in terms of defining economic status is there's kind of two different ways that you can think about it, defining economic status or poverty. And so the first is using absolute terms, uh, and that's closer to what I just described, where you take an absolute level of resources, so say $20,000, and you're picking um, anyone that's below that or above that. Um, and so in this sense, the size of these groups might change across the years. Uh, what we do in our study instead is we're taking a relative approach. And so we are instead taking percentiles of the American population. And so specifically, we're looking at people between the 15th percentile and the 75th percentile for the total middle class. And then we split that group down the middle. 
Um, and so we chose these percentiles because uh, when we look across the cohort, so of course the actual level of resources within each group will change between the years, but across all the cohorts, these percentiles approximately aligned with 15% being about 138% of the poverty line. And we chose, and that's the income cutoff for Medicaid under Medicaid expansions. Um, and then the upper threshold approximately aligned with about 200% of the median, uh, which is what I described earlier. Okay, so um, we really are looking at sort of the bottom half of the middle and the upper half of the middle, and you're seeing them follow what looked like two fairly different trajectories. I want to understand a little bit more about those findings and what the implications of those findings are. We'll cover those topics after we take a short break. And we're back. I'm speaking with Mr. Jack Chapel about uh, the bifurcation of trends for aging adults in the United States. Uh, we've been talking about the findings of the paper, and now I'd like to dive a little bit deeper. One of the aspects, as you looked at the economic resources of these two uh, halves of the middle, if you will, uh, is the role of some specific characteristics. And two of them stood out for me as I read the paper, and I wondered if you could comment on them. One had to do with housing, which we know is a big deal in this country. And then another had to do with taxation, which, you know, is one of the mechanisms we use to try to uh, compensate for some people having higher and lower income. So if you could talk a little bit about how those fit into the differences you observed, it'd be great. Yeah, definitely. So uh, let's start with housing. So uh, first, we saw a really steep and striking decline in home ownership among the lower middle group, uh, and this happened after the Great Recession and then continued into 2018. Um, and so we definitely saw a decline in home ownership uh, among all Americans after the Great Recession, uh, but this dip was much smaller and less long-lasting for those in the upper half. Um, whereas for the lower middle, they had home ownerships that were about 10 percentage points lower than the upper middle in 1994. But by 2018, uh, that gap had actually tripled, and now only about half of them were homeowners. So housing, of course, is a very important and one of the primary sources of wealth for the middle class historically. And we see that this drop in home ownership is also reflected in their overall levels of wealth. And so this is very important because if people are entering retirement with less wealth saved, then they're going to be much more dependent on public sources of income uh, like Social Security. Uh, but then besides that, housing stability, of course, is also important for health because it's harder to manage your health when you're worried about whether you'll have shelter. Um, and we don't really have a direct measure of uh, stability or affordability in our study, but you can imagine, uh, or I imagine, that the driving force of this decrease in home ownership uh, among the lower middle group is probably a lack of sufficient resources to buy a home. Um, and this increasing housing price can also crowd out other consumption as well. Um, so it's important for a, a number of reasons. Um, thinking about progressive taxation, so what we did in our study is we actually simulated what people's tax liabilities would be. So we don't actually have data on what they paid in taxes, but we know how much they owe. 
Um, and so if we assume they paid their fair share of taxes, we see that progressive taxation did make a pretty meaningful difference in the inequality that we see in financial resources. Um, but this decrease in inequality was not nearly enough to make up for the huge differences that we're seeing in private income uh, and economic resources over time. So progressive taxation is definitely uh, helping, but it, I don't think it's going to be enough to really overcome the large inequalities that we're seeing. Yeah, so I was really struck by these. I mean, they fit, you know, sort of what you read in the headlines, but to see them over such a long period and the implications for this population that uh, you have a that that growing gap in home ownership is just so striking. And then you think about, as you say, the resources you have available to draw upon as you reach retirement, and that gap is tremendous. In addition, uh, you know, taxation used to be a great equalizer, and it sounds like it's still helping. But uh, given the the, the uh, disparities in income growth, you'd need higher levels of taxation if you wanted to close those gaps uh, even more. Let's just cover one other sort of aspect of the study, and then I really want to get into the implications, which is you mentioned earlier that the health status of the groups uh, was getting worse. Um, say a little bit more about the role of the health uh, characteristics of, of the different cohorts. Yeah, sure. So as I mentioned, we find that kind of just general health status uh, is seems to be deteriorating for both of these middle income groups, um, but is deteriorating faster for the lower middle. Uh, so to be a little bit more specific, uh, starting with first, we look at diagnosed health conditions. And so we see that diagnosed health conditions are going up for both groups. Uh, and by 2018, those in the lower middle uh, are approaching almost having two diagnosed chronic conditions uh, compared to about 1 to 1.5 for the upper middle. Um, and so some people might think that uh, this could be due to uh, either overdiagnosis or maybe it's good news that we're catching undiagnosed diabetes and hypertension early and preventing future heart disease by diagnosing them earlier. Uh, and I think this is definitely part of the case, but uh, we also look at people's self-reports of what they perceive their health status to be. Uh, and here we also see the exact same trend. So we see people uh, more often describing that their health is poor or fair. And we also see a pretty worrying increase that's been documented elsewhere in the rates of pain. And this has been especially prevalent in the lower middle, uh, where by 2018, almost half of lower middle men, maybe 40%, were reporting that they experienced moderate to severe, to severe pain most of the time. So I, I, I think it's more than just uh, an issue of diagnosis. Um, we also looked at risk factors. And so smoking rates were um, particularly interesting. So smoking rates were actually pretty similar between both groups, uh, both the upper middle and lower middle in 1994. Um, but then since then, they've actually remained pretty elevated for the lower middle, hovering around 25 to 30%. Um, but at the same time, for the upper middle, smoking rates were cut in half. So it seems that we're not making uh, enough progress there. And then I think the final uh, health characteristic I wanted to point out was uh, the only one where we're actually seeing a decrease in the inequality, uh, and that's obesity. Um, but this is not all good news because uh, the decrease is actually coming from the fact that those in the upper middle are, uh, are seeing rates of obesity increase so fast that they're actually uh, surpassing the rates of obesity in the lower middle. So uh, it's 
an equalizer, but an equalizer in the wrong direction. Okay, so, you know, I listen to this and read the paper and I come away with the sense that, you know, we do have this division in the middle income population uh, and you're, it's a combination of worsening health in, in general. You've got some uh, exceptions to this, but worsening health and, and fewer resources, or at least no growth in resources, whereas the upper half is, you know, the, the general health conditions are somewhat better and the resources available to address them are higher. Um, but the reality is we've got more people in this age uh, category coming down the pike, and uh, they're going to have health care needs, they're going to have caretaking needs. So we're, of course, a policy journal, and I'm always curious when you uh, write a paper like this, what do you think about, based on what you've studied here and elsewhere, um, what do you think some of the policy implications are for providing the support that these populations will need as they age? Yeah, so I think the major implication from our study uh, first has to do with the proportion of people's lives that we expect they're going to be dealing with health challenges as they enter retirement. In our study, we're projecting that uh, all Americans will live a little bit longer. So people's life expectancies are lengthening. um, And even though that lengthening has not been completely equal, uh, we do find that people in the lower middle can expect to live about a year longer after 60 than uh, similar Americans in 1994. Uh, But what's important is that when we then account for the health status of each of these life years, uh, we see a little bit different pattern. So what we do is we adjust each of those life years for uh, the health-related quality and uh, where one life year is perfect health and zero is death. And we find that once we've done that adjustment, uh, the quality-adjusted life expectancy for the lower middle is actually, again, no higher than in 1994, even though it's continued to rise for the upper middle. So essentially what we're saying is that uh, for half of these middle-income seniors or future seniors, we expect that they will be living longer lives, but with uh, much more healthcare needs. And then at the same time, they're going to have no more economic resources to help support those needs. Um, and so increasing years lived with disability burdens our healthcare system. Um, it can also reduce productivity and it can strain family caregivers. And so this is all a pretty risky combination to have as we uh, transition to this aging society. So uh, (laughs) one tries not to be depressed when (laughs) uh, we try not to be depressed when we talk about our research. But um, so uh, does this mean changes to eligibility for some of these programs? Does it mean we should just plan on needing to spend more on some of those? Yeah, so I think, yeah, and I'll start with uh, maybe a little bit more good news, actually, uh, because it has been a depressing study. But so our study ended in 2018, and there's actually been some policy changes since then that we think are welcome, especially for this lower middle income group. Um, And so thinking first about health insurance, um, so when we were originally working on the study uh, a few years ago, one of the things we thought was that uh, we could maybe extend the income eligibility thresholds for things like uh, premium subsidies for marketplace health insurance coverage, things like that. And and that's actually what we've seen happen since then. So uh, let's see, after the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021, and then following in the Inflation Reduction Act 
uh, we did actually increase these um, premium uh, premium eligibility standards. Uh, and then I think another thing that's important uh, along those lines is controlling the prices of healthcare. And so another welcome change uh, was the beginning to give Medicare the ability to negotiate drug prices. And so we think that uh, controlling these prices is also very going to be very important uh, for a few reasons. So one thing that I didn't touch on uh, was that we're projecting that Medicare costs, Medicaid costs, but also out-of-pocket costs are all going to be increasing drastically for these groups. And so you can think about um, healthcare prices uh, really crowding out other investments. And then when you combine this with the rising healthcare costs, you can really see how uh, these people, especially in the lower middle, are really being squeezed and might be having a really hard time making ends meet with all these rising prices, uh, even though they are not eligible for much government support. Um, and so, of course, controlling healthcare prices has been a long ongoing effort, as I'm sure all listeners know. Um, but we think that, you know, this is definitely going to be even more important as we continue to age. So that's a really interesting uh, place to take this work and acknowledging that the needs are not going to go away, uh, that the resources that the families and individuals themselves are going to have to put into them are by definition limited. You've you've provided the data for that. And so either we pay a lot more out of public programs, which will probably do some of that, but we also need to figure out how to uh, make sure that what we pay for in those programs costs us as little as possible while still achieving the goals and allowing people to get the quality care they deserve and the like. But you're right. It's uh, uh, some of this is just sort of payment rates as well as the volume of care people are going to need. Well, it does sound like, well, let me just ask as we finish, um, is your sense, and this again, may be going a little bit beyond your work, but is your sense that the upper half through the combination of, of, of uh, you know, steady health uh, and some improvements other than around obesity and income gains and uh, home ownership levels, that uh, that portion is probably on average, of course, there's variability, but on average going to be okay and that we maybe just need to put more of our focus on, if you will, the bottom half of the middle class? Yeah, so I think to end on some more maybe brighter news, uh, we do, so as I've said, we do find that the upper middle class has been gaining on almost all the dimensions we measure. So, you know, we do find deteriorating health, but we still project that they are going to be living significantly longer lives than similar people in 1994. And even after adjusting for that health, we do still find that they'll be seeing some increases. Uh, and we see that the increases among this upper middle group actually match pretty well with increases in the very top of the economic distribution that we don't include in the main paper. And so, uh, of course, the levels are different, but the trends are, are, are pretty similar. And so, yeah, we think, we think this is good news that there is uh, an upper half that is, you know, continuing to still do pretty well and seems fairly prepared. Um, and so it is really about what do we need to do to continue and help add more support for this lower half that seems to be struggling. Well, uh, this seems like a good place to end. You know, we do a lot of sort of policy and problem definition in health affairs. And to be able to narrow our focus on the sub uh, 
population that is most at risk for not having the resources should, I think, enable us to focus uh, policy efforts on that population. So that seems like an important uh, outcome here, even uh, as we get uh, some challenging news. We also uh, get some information that will help us, I think, uh, design better policies. So, uh, Mr. Chappell, thank you for conducting this research, for uh, taking uh, time to describe it uh, in such, uh, with such clarity. Uh, thank you for being my guest today on Health Policy. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about the Health Policy.